One of the things I really like about the Psalms is the realism and the balance that you find in them. What I mean by that is the Psalms are not academic. They are not an ivory tower picture of theology. Nor do the Psalms give us a kind of pie-in-the-sky worldview, suggesting that everything is just fine and everything will be okay with no hiccups or problems whatsoever. King David and the other authors of the Psalms address the full spectrum of life circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all while urging us to live in a very particular way. Now, as you read the Psalms, you'll notice that there are, well, at least two major contextual threads that flow throughout the 150 of them. And the first isn't very pleasant. The first thread that you get from the Psalms is that we live in a fallen world. That is to say that the way the world is, the way that our society currently exists, isn't the way that God originally made it, and it's not the way He originally designed it. We live in a world... 21st century Bahamas, United States, Canada, anywhere you go and everywhere you go, we live in a world that has been spoiled by human decisions and by our sin. And in Psalm 9, we get a glimpse of this. We see a spoiled world in terms of the state of human relationships. Listen to the way David makes reference to his enemies in verse 3. If, if you go around school talking about your enemies, you're going to get reprimanded. It's, it's not good to be talking about our enemies, but this is what David does. He makes reference to particular groups of people, and he calls them wicked. He, he says, the wicked, in verse 5. He refers to persecution. And hardship that regularly threatens his well-being. Now does David want us to be talking about wicked people and persecution and hardship and our enemies? Or is he simply describing the state of the world? Is he simply describing what he experiences and sees and observes all around him? Which is, we live in a fallen world. This isn't the way God made it. This is not what He intends for. And this is not how it's going to finish. Which leads me to the second thread in the Psalms, which you'll be glad to know is far more positive than the first. The first thread is we live in a fallen world, a spoiled world. But secondly, the second thread is God's righteous plans will ultimately triumph. God's righteous plans will ultimately triumph. So on the one hand, we have the bad news that we live in a spoiled world, a contaminated world, if you will, where sin and suffering threaten our joy. Yet on the other hand, the scripture holds out for us this glorious hope for our future. And so for me, what emerges in the time in between, we live in this spoiled world, this contaminated world. We're told there's a glorious hope that awaits, 
But now we're in the time in between and we should have a question that rises to the surface. How shall we live? In light of the fact that we find ourselves in this messy context, in light of the fact that we live in the light of future glory, how shall we conduct ourselves? How shall we live? And this is where the Psalms help us. And this is where Psalm 9 can help us. And I'd like to focus, if your Bibles are open, to the first 11 verses of Psalm 9. And I want to suggest that what we have here in these verses is a picture of thanksgiving. We have in these 11 verses a portrait of what gratitude looks like, or at least should look like, in the life of a believer. More than that, what we find in the words of Psalm 9 is a picture of what worship should look like. As we walk through this morning the characteristics of thanksgiving, I think you will agree that the same characteristics are readily transferable as principles for worship. Which leads me to begin by asserting this. Expressing God-honoring thanksgiving is an important way to worship God. Expressing God-honoring thanksgiving is an important way to worship God. Now this would explain why Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, would say, In everything, give thanks. Other translations put it, In all circumstances, give thanks. And we might unpack that a bit. When good things happen or bad things happen, give thanks. So what does God-honoring gratitude look like? Well, this psalm presents us with at least six characteristics of gratitude for our application. And I say the word application on purpose. Because sometimes you come to church and you take in information and you leave and you don't necessarily know what are you supposed to do with this. But the Psalms present principles in such a way that it is very clear and even easy to apply these principles. You can apply them even before you leave today because, again, they're principles for worship as well. Principle number one, God-honoring gratitude is God-directed. God-honoring gratitude is God directed? Look at verse 1. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord. In this time of thanksgiving, you have a lot of people giving thanks, but it's very important. It, it only honors God. Your thanksgiving only honors God when it's directed at Him. When it's aimed at Him. Perhaps your experience has been like mine. I've been at a lot of Thanksgiving celebrations over the years. And I've come to recognize that God isn't always in the picture in those celebrations. I've heard people express gratitude for all kinds of things. Sincere gratitude for many things. Without any reference to God whatsoever. So I want to admit that there is a way to possess a sincere but vague feeling of gratitude. 
It's possible, likely even, for an atheist to say, I feel thankful today. That's possible. But the only way your gratitude can be God-honoring is if it's aimed at Him. It's one thing for you to be a person who counts your blessings, but it's quite another thing to thank the one who's given you those blessings in the first place. There's no ambiguity in David's declaration. He says, I will give thanks to God. It's God-directed. That's the first mark. Secondly, God-honoring gratitude is grounded in reason. God-honoring gratitude is grounded in reason. Because life is messy, because bad things will happen to you, you will not always feel like giving thanks to God. Because when things are going poorly, that's not going to be your natural instinct. And I suspect that if David waited, if David waited until he felt like praising, if David waited until he felt like giving thanks, I doubt that David would have given thanks as often as he did. But thankfully, David governs himself more reasonably and more rationally. You see, David makes a concerted effort to contemplate God. He makes a concerted effort to think about who God is and what God has done in the world and in his life. And when David thinks about God, when he meditates upon him, he then makes a decision to praise and give thanks. Look at the language of resolve in the first two verses. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name. He doesn't say, I feel warm and fuzzy, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to sing your praises. He makes a decision. He resolves. He makes a determination. Now, feelings and emotions have an important role to play, as we'll soon see in our expression of gratitude. But it's important that we know that feelings are not the ground of gratitude. Feelings are not the ground of praise. We do not praise and worship when we feel like it. We make a determination based on reason. Thirdly, God-honoring gratitude... Expresses, expresses itself passionately. This is important for us, for this group in particular. God-honoring gratitude expresses itself passionately. Why do I say that's important for this group? Well, the average Presbyterian, and you may or may not be Presbyterian or average, but the average Presbyterian loves that second point. The average Presbyterian hears, oh, we're grounded in reason. This is us. We're a thinking group. We're a logically bound group. We're about reason. But Presbyterians, at least the, the ones that I've come across, struggle with this next mark. They struggle with the idea that our expressions of worship, our expressions of thanksgiving, ought to be marked by passion. If you haven't been in a Presbyterian church before, or you're not familiar with this 
uh, Christian group. Uh, let me tell you this. Presbyterian, I'm not just talking about myself, by the way, because it, it may sound like that. Presbyterians like to do things in very measured ways, in very particular ways. There's a lot of checks and balances and controls and accountability with what we do. Presbyterians tend to be very uncomfortable doing anything that might invite comparisons with some of the more what we would call chaotic expressions of praise that we observe in some charismatic churches. And I don't, I don't want to name those churches, but I think you've, if you've lived on this island for any length of time, you know there's a great variety and there's a spectrum between what is full of reason and what is full of passion. And what Presbyterians often do is they err by saying, we don't want to identify with the passion over here, we're just going to stick with reason. But we err. I want to tell every Presbyterian and every rational worshiper, we err if our expressions of thanksgiving lack passion. If our expressions of gratitude lack passion, we err and we fall short of what God requires. How do I know that? David tells me. David says in verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. We think, well, that's just David. David David was like a charismatic of his day. That's just David. He probably wouldn't have been a Presbyterian elder. Well, let's give attention to what Jesus said. You remember that Jesus was asked to explain what the greatest commandment was. And what did Jesus say? He said, the greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart. From the Old Testament to the New, the message is the same. God's people are passionate about thanking Him and worshiping Him. So let's not be so careful. Let's not be so measured that our expressions of gratitude and praise come across as robotic. And anyone who knows me is, is part of me wants to be robotic, part of me wants to be measured and under control, and the only part that isn't is the part that God's working on. We're meant to be people of passion. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord for, from all my heart, with all my heart. David models it, Jesus commands it, be passionate. In your expressions of thanksgiving. Mark number four. This is going to sound redundant, but it isn't. Mark number four. God honoring gratitude expresses itself joyfully. God honoring gratitude expresses itself joyfully. And let me tell you why I don't think this is redundant to point three. I think Mark four qualifies what Mark three ought to look like. Let me put it this way. I think you will agree with me that a person can have passion. A person can have a ton of passion without having any joy. And it's not really difficult for me to give an example of that where that's the case. 
And, and you know me, I don't like to get into controversial discussions from the pulpit. But let me just share what I've observed. There has been a lot of talk about U.S. politics in the last several months. And as a Canadian living in the Bahamas, let me tell you what I've observed. In discussing U.S. politics with people, I've observed a lot of passion. The average American is not indifferent about what has taken place. They are not indifferent about politics. I have observed a lot of passion on both sides of the political spectrum. And I don't want to sound unkind here, but I've not sensed a lot of joy on either side. What I've observed is these passionately held political views devoid of any lingering joy. And what I want to say is that Christians ought not to be like this. Our expressions of thanksgiving should be passionate, but our expressions of thanksgiving ought to have a winsome character to it. There ought to be a winsome nature, not flippant, but winsome nature to our worship. David says in verse 2, he says, I will be glad and exalt in you. And again, I, I sometimes get nervous when I say things that are not entirely positive, And I don't mean to be uncharitable in any way. But let me just suggest something, and you can think about it over lunch today. I think this world desperately needs Christians who are glad. I think this world would be blessed remarkably if Christians were more joyful in their expression of thanksgiving for what God has done. As we consider our predicament apart from Jesus Christ, as we consider the reality that as John Newton's hymn puts it, we once were lost and without hope. As we consider our predicament that the Bible says that we were once counted as God's enemies. That's what the Bible says about people who have not yet come to Christ. That they're under wrath, that they're His enemies. But now in Christ, we are the special recipients of His grace, His forgiveness, His favor, His blessing. And this ought to make the average Christian glad. We're not lost anymore. We're not blind anymore. We're not at odds with our Creator. We've been found. We've been saved. We've been favored. And that ought to make us more glad. And so our gratitude should manifest itself in both passionate and winsome ways. Notice also the object of David's joy. David doesn't simply say, I will rejoice, Lord, in all the blessings you've given to me. David doesn't say that. David doesn't say, Lord, I will be careful to count all of my blessings one by one. He doesn't say that. David says, I will be glad and I will exalt in you. Without regard to what God gives or doesn't give. Without regard to whether things are good or bad or otherwise. He says, 
Apart from anything you give me, apart from any provision, I will be glad and exult in you. Be joyful in your expression of gratitude. Fifthly, God-honoring gratitude is accompanied by faith in God. God-honoring gratitude is accompanied by faith in God. What is this a call for? This is a call to think back. Think into your past. Think of the ways in which the Lord has helped you and assisted you in days gone by. And when you think about what the Lord has done for you in the past, it should inspire both gratitude for what God has done, but it should also strengthen your hope and faith for what He will do in the future. And again, John John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, tracks this pattern beautifully. He says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. John Newton had confidence in future grace because he had carefully tracked and counted God's faithfulness toward him in the past. Similarly for King David, thinking upon God's past provisions gave him reason to trust God for future provisions. Look at how he closes the section in verses 9 and 10. He says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And finally, our sixth mark for God-honoring gratitude. It expresses itself publicly. God-honoring gratitude expresses itself publicly. Now you probably realize... The wider society is very uncomfortable with point six in this psalm and in this sermon. You probably already realize that there are contexts where talking about your religious beliefs is discouraged, if not altogether forbidden or legislated against in some way. Where is this evident? Well, I grew up in Canada and and the Canada that I left did not want to hear from Christianity. The Canada that I left and the Canada that remains, you are not welcome to openly speak about Christian things. And I'm gathering this has become more true in the United States as well. And it's less true here in the Bahamas. But I would say this, even here... The notion that our religious convictions should be kept to ourselves, even here, is gaining traction. For the sake of getting along, for the sake of just not being at odds with one another, there is pressure on faith communities to not go public with their views. Now this poses a real problem for the sincere Christian. And here's why. You read your Bible from beginning to end, and there's this constant mandate set before God's people. 
From Abraham to Moses to the prophets to Jesus and the early church and so forth. There is this mandate. And David gives us this mandate in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord. That sounds like worship in here. Enthroned in Zion. But listen. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. The Psalms often take worship that takes place in a context like this. And it says, now you need to go and do this for the nations. You need to proclaim that Yahweh is Lord to those who haven't heard his name. There is a mandate for God's people to proclaim who he is and what he has done. And there's no notation in scripture where we're told to keep quiet. Just keep a low profile with your beliefs. It'll be easier for you. Nor should we ever limit our expressions to gatherings like this. The call to God's people is to proclaim to the nations what He has done. To proclaim to those who have not yet heard of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, a cynical person might want to say, well, Bryn, I read the Psalms, but I heard that there's this call for Israel to proclaim Yahweh to all the nations, but this is a new day. What's the New Testament say on this? Well, Jesus, after he was crucified and after he rose from the dead, he gave some parting words to his followers. We call this the Great Commission. And, and we would call the Great Commission the main thing that the church or Christ's followers are left to do. And what did Jesus say? He said, go therefore into all the nations and make them disciples. Baptize them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian mandate from its beginnings in the Old Testament to its endings in the New Testament is made Christ known. What we believe and who we are is not meant to be a secret. People ought not to be surprised when you tell them you belong to St. Andrew's Kirk. The worst thing you could hear, I hope, is, oh, I didn't realize you were a church-going person. That would be like the worst thing someone could say to me. It means a total surprise that I'm a follower of Christ. Friends, we have a mandate to make Christ known among the nations. And now let me connect that with what I said at the beginning about the Psalms. The Psalms is really clear. This world is a mess. This world is not the way God originally designed it to be. It's been spoiled and contaminated by sin. We're in a fallen world. Point one. Point two. God's righteous plans will ultimately triumph. But now let me connect the dots. The New Testament tells us that the way God's righteous plans triumph is through His people proclaiming His greatness. You see, it's, it's not that we stand back and, come on God, we know you're going to triumph in the end. Come do that thing you promised. Come on. No. The New Testament tells us that the Christian church is part and parcel of the fulfillment of that plan. 
So if, if you ask the question, has God's plan ultimately triumphed here and elsewhere? And if the answer is no, guess who's to blame? The church. Because we have been charged with carrying out God's plan. We've been charged with making Christ known. We've been charged with expressing gratitude in particular ways. You have a picture for gratitude. You have a picture for worship. You have a picture for life. It's God-directed. It's reasonable. It's passionate. It's joyful. It's trusting. And it's public. Don't miss that last one. The world wants to squeeze out that last one. The broken world we live in desperately needs Christians whose gratitude and whose lives are marked by such things. And so I want to urge you this morning to make every opportunity to make Jesus Christ known. You're a student. You have a day job. You're retired. You belong to a social club. Make Christ known. But we need to be mindful of this. God's righteous plan will ultimately succeed. But God's righteous plan includes you. Live for Him. Live like this for Him. Amen.